When I went to Denver, I knew a little bit of football. I didn't really know people uh, and how important that aspect of this process and maintaining the culture and building the team uh, was. And um, and I and I failed, and I didn't you know I didn't succeed at it. And so, looking at that experience has been one of the best. Uh, things uh, in my life in terms of my overall growth as a as a person as a coach what do I need to do different how do I need to handle my role if I have another opportunity uh, and do better at it Raiders are on their own 32 Carr takes the snap and fumbles the ball fumble the ball the Chargers I believe have jumped on it they that's Tillery oh mercy there's five seconds there's time for a field goal First down from the 42. Blitz. Lost the football. It's on the ground. Covered by the Raiders. His college teammate, Charles Woodson, on the blitz. Tom Brady never sees him coming from the front side. Greg Beekert recovers the fumble. The quarterback's arm was going forward. It is an incomplete pass. <laughs> Just crushed my dreams. Boom. Sadness. That's the one. Adam Candy in today in place of Ed Graney, who's out covering the Pro Bowl and NHL All-Star Game and whatever else is happening in Las Vegas this week. Before we get into a little bit of Derek Carr and the Raiders here, I did want to touch on this in regards to the Brian Flores um, lawsuit. Part of that lawsuit is him saying that Dolphins owner Stephen Ross offered him $100,000 for every loss in 2019 because Ross wanted a higher draft pick. And so he was trying to incentivize his coach to lose games. so They could draft higher. Hugh Jackson, who coached the Browns to, what, an 0-16 season. Um, somebody tweeted, Jimmy Haslam wasn't offering 100 k per loss or Hugh would be on the Forbes list. Hugh Jackson responded to that, saying, trust me, it was a good number. Do you believe that's Hugh Jackson saying that, hey, I was being offered money to lose, or do you think Hugh Jackson's just trying to make a joke on Twitter? Nope, I believe that is Hugh Jackson saying he was offered money, and in part because Brian Flores' lawyers on Get Up with Mike Greenberg on ESPN earlier said they'd heard from other coaches who also had been offered money to tank. So, why would we not believe that Hugh Jackson was telling the truth there? I think the part that's interesting is you know, Brian Flores was making $3 million a year as the head coach of the Dolphins. So $100,000 for every loss would be not insignificant in raising his salary by, what, maybe as much as 40%? Yeah. I. The curious part on that, uh, when you say, like, they've heard from other coaches who are offered the same thing or, or similar things in terms of money for losses – I'm kind of fascinated. Did it? Did anybody take it? Like, if we haven't, if there's enough people that were offered it, surely at some point there's a coach that said, "Okay, I'll take a hundred thousand dollars for every loss we have." Like, at some point, if we have enough, enough uh, sample size here, somebody would have said yes and taken the money. Yeah, I'll, I'll be very curious to see if anyone's willing to say that out loud. <laughs> no one will ever say that out loud, but you will hear from the moral high ground 
of those who chose not to do it. Because if you think Brian Flores likely will never coach in the NFL again, you can guarantee the coach who took the money who will be banned by the NFL is never coaching again. All right. On the Raiders, on Derek Carr, uh, I am I am curious uh, from the press conference. Uh, Mark Davis introduced Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler earlier this week. Uh, McDaniels was asked about Derek Carr and said, hey, we can win with Derek Carr. When Ziegler was asked specifically about giving Derek Carr an extension, he was very noncommittal, said they've got to get to know each other and build a relationship with Derek Carr, not really a resounding uh, pound on the table like John Gruden like to do did you take anything from that to indicate if they like Derek Carr extend Derek Carr if they want to move on from Derek Carr what I took from that was that the Raiders have exactly what they need which is a head coach who doesn't speak in cryptic weird sentences (laughs) and try to confuse you be like I don't know man we gotta we gotta think about that but what I will tell you is this Derek Carr is the best quarterback in the history of football and I'll tell you man we're gonna think about whether we want him like, they don't need any of that. Like, Dave Ziegler's going to give you a nice vanilla quote that gets him off to the right start, which is like, whoa, whoa, first day on the job. Let me just see who works in this building. So the part that I take away from that, and maybe this is a lot to do with the Rams being in the Super Bowl and Matthew Stafford going from the Lions to the Rams, not to already discount the Josh McDaniels era, but I think from a Derek Carr standpoint, I think he should want out of Vegas. Like, if you're Derek Carr, I think you look at Matt Stafford and you say, that's that's me, isn't it? Like, that's that's kind of me. Like, solid quarterback. Certainly not, like, a great quarterback. Certainly not a MVP contender at quarterback. But a good NFL quarterback who played with an organization who lost for a long time. And the quarterback play, occasionally to blame, but not really ever the main point of focus, the main blame for that losing. If I'm Derek Carr, I'm looking around saying, you know, I kind of want out of here. Like I kind of want to go to an organization where I might be able to win right away. I kind of want to do what Matt Stafford's doing. And now that Tom Brady's retired, that could be the Tampa Bay Bucks. And you're right. It could be the Tampa Bay Bucks because there are very few organizations that are successful at the level that the Rams are without having a good quarterback. Right, like the Rams are a weird case because even though we talk a lot about all the trades that they've made in the draft picks they don't have, they have one of the highest percentages of drafted players on their roster of any team in the NFL this year. So there's still organizational stability, even though that stability involved a mediocre quarterback in Jared Goff. So you can look at Tampa and say, sure, I might want to go there. Now, here's the problem with Tampa. You're probably not going to have Rob Gronkowski. You're probably not going to have Chris Godwin, who's a free agent. So if what you have is Mike Evans and Brashad Perryman, then I don't know that that's the most attractive situation anyway. I think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are probably on their way to going back to being a team at the level of the Raiders next year. What about the Colts? Colts are a great situation for a quarterback. Uh, The question is whether they're going to admit they made a mistake. Uh, Are they willing to do what the Cardinals did with Josh Rosen after one year and say, you know what? This seemed like a great idea at the time, but man, um, that new model that they just rolled off the line is a lot nicer. And if you're the Indianapolis Colts, hey, you got an up close look at Derek Carr ruining your season. So why wouldn't you be more interested in bringing in a quarterback better than Carson Wentz? Yeah, I like to me, the Colts are one of the big ones that stand out because like they're a team 
that looks like it has a really good roster except for the Carson Wentz situation, except for that quarterback spot. And it feels like they are Derek Carr away from being kind of legitimate. And I don't know that I would say they could actually win the Super Bowl, given that the AFC might be stacked for the next handful of years with the young quarterbacks in the league. But it does seem like a team that's in a really good spot if they could answer the quarterback situation. And Derek Carr, yeah, he might fumble away some games for you. But for the most part, Derek Carr's not going to lose you very many games, which is kind of all the Colts need. And that's kind of what, if I'm Derek Carr, that's what I'm trying to find. I'm trying to find that team that is, hey, this is not the Raiders. This is not an organization that has failed year after year after year. This is a good organization. And I want to be Matt Stafford. I want to be the quarterback that goes to a new team. And wow, this is nicer than Detroit. And immediately has a chance to win something. Immediately, the goal is no longer, hey, make the playoffs, guys. Immediately, the goal is we can do more than just make the playoffs. If I'm Derek Hart, that's that's what I want. And as far as staying in Las Vegas, staying with an extension with the Raiders, I don't know how bad I would want that if I was Derek Carr. Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out the path for you, for Derek Carr right here. This is exactly what Derek Carr needs to do for the rest of this offseason and this year. And it's all incumbent upon him being willing to bet on himself and not having another one of those catastrophic kind of injuries that he had five years ago. If Derek Carr is willing to bet on himself, the right play for Derek Carr is to say, thank you very much, Mark Davis and Dave Ziegler. I'm not negotiating this year. I'm going to play out this contract. Because if Derek Carr goes out there and he believes Josh McDaniels is the coach to make him look fantastic, then Derek Carr could have the kind of season that sets him up as a free agent to get a contract far better than his closest comp, Kirk Cousins, who still went out there and got 30 plus million a year. So if you're in the situation of Derek Carr, maximize your value this year, whether it's to the Raiders or whether it's to any other team, because right now, I don't know where Derek Carr walks into this offseason and finds himself in a better spot than he's going to in Vegas with Josh McDaniels as his coach. If we assume that Josh McDaniels had some level of the credit to be gained for what happened in New England, because you take this offense, you do have an elite player in Darren Waller. You likely have a situation where you're either going to draft or sign a better receiver than you have because you have to account for the loss of Henry Ruggs one way or the other. Uh, you assume they will address the offensive line this offseason because a new sober look at that offensive line will say, my God, the best position for Alex Leatherwood is right, right, right guard, as in right over on the bench. So I think what you do for this team is say, build the best team around Derek Carr. And if you're Derek Carr, you say, you know who's going to be in the power position in a minute here? Me. You're not going to be talking about whether you can win with me. You're going to have the NFL, a quarterback needy league, looking at me and saying he's the best free agent available in 2023. That is, God, that'd be fascinating. Because like you said, you are, you're risking the injury side of this, right? If, if Derek Carr were to play with this one year left on his deal without an extension and suffer a big injury, then that's, that's potentially a massive hit for his career earnings. Right? His next contract probably is not going to be anything significant compared to what he could get technically right now most likely as an extension. But I love that idea. I love the idea of Derek Carr betting on himself, playing this last year without any extension in place. And, hey, look at that. He's awesome. And now all of a sudden he is the number one quarterback on the free agent market or whatever it would be. Like, I love that idea. I think that 
that might be the most fascinating of any possible outcome of Derek Carr and will he, won't he get an extension slash stay in Vegas. Well, and if you're out there saying to yourself, well, Adam, they could franchise tag him. Yeah, they could franchise tag him. And you know what would happen? He would make the average of the top five quarterbacks in the NFL the following year. <laughs> That's not such a bad turnout either. Yeah, and, and again, it's uh, the, the main risk is the injury risk. And if your car, are you... Do you worry? How much do you worry about that if you're Derek Carr? You've already seen you can come back from it, right? Is Derek Carr, all right, if Derek Carr suffers a major leg injury again, if he breaks a bone again, we've already seen Derek Carr proving come back from it, granted, at a much younger age, but he's far from out of the sweet spot for the age of an NFL quarterback being in his early 30s, right? He's going to get a three or four year contract from someone almost without question if he makes it to free agency. Or he's going to get it from Mark Davis if the Raiders are successful next year. They make the playoffs again next year. Mark Davis is handing out that contract to Derek Carr because he doesn't want to take the PR hit of trying to sell to this fan base. You've made the playoffs two years in a row with two different head coaches. The stability element of that is Derek Carr. But you know what? We're going to go ahead and roll the dice with someone in the draft. No, that's the most likely outcome. And you know it is now is that they do make the playoffs and say, no, thank you, Derek. Uh, We don't need you anymore. That's what's going to happen. All right. Coming up next, Bischoff's Briefs takes a look at UNLV finally beating Nevada. Bischoff's Briefs. I'm asking you if you know the difference between right and wrong. I discovered at a very early age that if I talk long enough, I could make anything right or wrong. Bischoff's Briefs. So either I'm God or truth is relative. Bischoff's Briefs. And in either case, booyah. Bischoff's Briefs. UNLV beat Nevada last night. An 11-point win for the running Rebels. They got Donovan Williams back. Kevin Kruger, good job being sly there, making it seem like Donovan Williams was still going to be out for quite a while when he missed practice on, what was that, Monday, or Tuesday, I believe, before Monday before the game. I'll get the dates right here eventually. So UNLV got its second leading scorer back. Nevada, meanwhile, played that game without their best player. Grant Sherfield did not play. Nevada's been struggling even with Sherfield in there, but it certainly doesn't help them that their best player wasn't on the floor. So the health, the timing of the health situations, very beneficial to UNLV last night. Now, UNLV's win over Nevada. It snapped an eight-game losing streak in this series, which... Doesn't sound real when I say it out loud that UNLV has lost eight straight to Nevada, even knowing that Eric Musselman was awesome, even knowing that UNLV hasn't been to the NCAA tournament, getting close to a decade here. It still doesn't sound real that they had lost eight straight games in that series. Kevin Kruger now 1-0 against Nevada. To compare to his predecessors, TJ Otzelberger was 0-4 and Marvin Menzies was 1-6. So the two previous coaches went 1-10 and 10 against Nevada. Kevin Kruger already matched their win total in his first game. Probably the worst Nevada team of the last six seasons that UNLV has played, though, especially given that Grant Sherfield was out. Now, here's what I'm fascinated to see from UNLV going forward. They are suddenly efficient on offense they had an unbelievable game Bryce Hamilton had an unbelievable game against Colorado State right they were at 1.3 points per possession and that is a crazy high number if they were to hit that for the rest of the season 
they'd be one of, if not the best offense in all of college basketball. That's an incredible efficiency number. Last night against Nevada, they hit 1.1, which is very good. That would put them right at the top, tied with Wyoming as the most efficient team in Mountain West play if they hit 1.1 the rest of the season. So the last two games, roughly 1.2 points per possession would be the best offense in the Mountain West. What I'm fascinated about by it, though, is the way they've done it. You can go two ways with this, right? You can go one way and think this is this is why UNLV might have a chance to like actually threaten in this conference. Probably not for the conference regular season title because they've already lost too much, but beat anybody and be a legitimate threat in the conference uh, tournament. Or the reason behind this offensive efficiency, probably going to think is a fluke. And here's what it is. It's kind of simple, oversimplifying it for sure, but it might be this simple. It's three-point shooting. Like, UNLV went to Colorado State, and it was mainly Bryce Hamilton. He had a career-high seven threes. But they hit 12 of 29 threes against Colorado State. And that means other guys, there were five threes made by guys not named Bryce Hamilton in that game. And then last night, they hit 12 of 32 threes. And in the first half, they took 21 threes, which was a ridiculous number. But Nevada played some zone. UNLV struggled a little bit getting inside. They had some open threes, and they knocked down a lot of them. Prior to those two games, the only time that UNLV had hit 12 threes in a game this season was against Whittier College. Like, the only time they had shown any prowess from three-point range was when they played a Division three team that's nicknamed the Poets, right? UNLV's not a good shooting team. But going into last night, they were ranked 242nd in the country in three-point shooting. But over the last two games, that's changed. I would tell you the most likely reasoning here is that it's a fluke, right? It's a two-game hot streak where Bryce Hamilton got ridiculously hot against Colorado State, and then they, as a team, were pretty hot last night against Nevada. That's kind of the most likely scenario, but I do think you can look at it and you can take a couple of players here. Number one is Donovan Williams. He is shooting over 40% for the year. He's He's been good all season, right? And he's one of their high-volume shooters. So there's reason to think Donovan Williams, maybe he won't say over 40%, but there's reason to think Donovan Williams is going to keep knocking down threes because he's been doing it all year and he's been doing it on a pretty high volume. Bryce Hamilton's the other interesting one because he is this year shooting about the national average on three-point shots. And he's a high-volume guy as well, obviously. If he continues to shoot right at maybe a little bit above the national average from three, it's not a bad shot for him, and that's going to have a lot of value. You also have guys like Jordan McCabe and Mike Nugo who are right around like 31% for the year, which is not good. But if they can take like a 2 or 3% boost and get close to that national average and shoot two or three times a game, there might be reason to think UNLV, not that they're going to hit 12 in a lot of games, but is going to shoot well enough from three that it's going to help their offense. It might give them a big enough boost in some close games to actually win. So while I still, most of me thinks this is probably a fluke, they're probably not going to keep doing it, there is a little bit of reason if you kind of go through each player to think, well... Maybe they are good enough to keep shooting, not that well, but close to that level and increase their offensive efficiency for the rest of the season. So I'll add one thing to what you said in terms of the stats on Bryce Hamilton that I think is also going to explain why they might be shooting a little better from three. His free throw rate on the seasons, 28.5%. His free throw rate in conference is 37%. If Bryce Hamilton is getting to the line more often, if his downhill drives are leading to more offense instead of more contested bad shots, then 
you have to respect Bryce Hamilton going into the lane in a different way. And if you have to collapse more on Bryce, if you have to send two or three when he gets into the lane, then those three-point shots are going to be open, whether it's Bryce or anybody else. So I think that that alone goes a long way to helping UNLV have a better offense. Now, is the best explanation, is the Occam's razor of this a fluke? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you look at what you've talked about a lot this year, UNLV versus Ken Palm top 100 and below 100, the Colorado State is game is the outlier. It is the only outlier. And you say to yourself, all right, well, that sort of thing happens. When you have a player with the skill of Bryce Hamilton, he can get that hot for one game and wreck everything else that's going on. Yeah, and that's, again, obviously that could happen for Bryce Hamilton's really good. Probably not going for 42 again, but where he can have games where he takes over and he's the reason you win. And, and they're going to play a lot of top 100 teams here to finish the year because the Mountain West has a lot of teams in sort of that 40 to 60 range. So they're going to get a lot of good opponents here. And it, it probably happened again. They'll probably win another game they're not supposed to win with Bryce Hamilton having a great game. But to do it consistently, and honestly, more importantly for this team, to do it in the Mountain West Tournament, to do it three or four straight days is going to be the real key because, uh, you know, they're not really contending for the Mountain West title. They don't really have any sort of NCAA tournament at large hopes here. So, oh, this is nice. But in reality, it's about is there a chance they can do this three straight games in the Mountain West Tournament, which there might be. I think that's that's maybe my biggest takeaway or my biggest change in thought process over the last week from this team is I wouldn't have thought 10 days ago, seven days ago, that this team was going to be able to win three games in three days against three, at least two good teams, right? I still would say that's very unlikely, but I feel like it's more possible now. I feel better about, hey, UNLV, they could do that. And if they continue to do this, or even if they just have, even if they go cold their next couple of games, but have another hot streak, like if they just continue to have a few games here and there where they shoot it well from three, that gives you reason to think, well, they could do that in the Mountain West Tournament. They could actually win some of these games. I do want to end Bischoff's briefs with one thing. An observation on the student section. They've got like uh, about five sections, roughly, that uh, students can sit in, or are supposed to sit in, I guess. It was probably 90% or more full last night. And there was a little bit of standing and cheering. Definitely not the entire game. Definitely wouldn't call it, you wouldn't go into that and think that was a good student section. But if we're lowering the bar based on what it's been the entirety of this year, where there has been zero student section, literally like six people sitting there. A incredible turnout from the UNLV student section in that game. Unbelievable turnout. Got to get a little bit more in terms of the cheering and the standing, but incredible turnout. And to be completely honest with you, like I think there's a ton of credit that should go to Eric Harper, the new athletic director, because that this was like the first thing he came in and said we need to get the attendance higher at Thomas and Mac. And they have focused on students. They're giving away spring break trips. They're giving away, they gave away raisin canes for a year last night. They gave free raisin canes to people who were at the tailgate ahead of time. Like you can win free custom Nikes. If you went to all six, the last two and the last four home games of the year, if you're a student, like they've gone out and found a way to get students to show up and show up to these games, which is, been a massive problem for a team that's had attendance issues if they can get the students even if it's not 90 percent every game because obviously that was nevada that i think is is a massive change and that is a massive credit to eric harper the new athletic director and it's smart because it's going after the low-hanging fruit it's going to be easier to get the students to come back to the games than it is the community at large 
because they have the most invested right now and because they are the most pliable because you can gift them with raising canes and with a chance of free <laughs> Jordans, right? Like that's not getting the average Golden Knights fan to come back to a UNLV basketball game. But go ahead and at least give your athletes the opportunity to have a better atmosphere by getting some students out to the game and creating what they did last night. It was maybe the first time all year that I remember seeing a UNLV player like, you know, do the arm wave to pump up the crowd. Like that's not something that happens because there's rarely anybody to actually get pumped up. But that did happen yesterday because there was a student section. There was a good attendance from the students. Coming up next, Miles Simmons joins the show. All right, Donovan Williams just throws the ball away. Or uh, Keyshawn Gilbert just throws the ball away. And Cambridge the other way. And he missed the dunk. Cambridge missed the dunk. Hamilton comes back the other way. Hamilton drives. Hamilton floater in the lane. No good. Milwaukee tries to put it back, and David gets called for a technical for holding onto the rim. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is The Press Box with Graney and Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. I forgot to mention that during Bischoff's reads, by the way. We had consecutive missed dunks in UNLV Nevada last night. It was glorious. Joining us now, though, from Pro Football Talk is Miles Simmons. Good morning, Miles. Good morning. Wow, consecutive missed dunks in a game. That's embarrassing, man. It was impressive. Uh, and they gave a technical foul on the second one for hanging on the rim. Uh, so they they ended up taking it away. But it was... <laughs> It was impressive basketball. It was very good. Um, so, all right, Miles, let's uh, let's start with Brian Flores. And I'm I'm curious uh, now that it's been about 24 hours, what happens next? Like, do you think we're gonna have more coaches that actually come out and say, you know what, I've experienced this, this, and this. Like, I've been in these situations. Are we gonna have more stories from more coaches, or do you think this is gonna be? Brian Flores had the courage to do it and put his career on the line, and maybe not so many other people are going to be willing to do that too. Well, that's a really good question. And, you know, we've seen a couple of things from a couple of different guys. I mean, Hugh Jackson is probably the most prominent person um, who has also said, like, listen, there was some things that may or may not have been untoward, and that's my word, not his. Uh, when it comes to being on the Browns and, you know, they also were absolutely wanting to tank back in those 2016-2017 seasons. I mean, there's a reason why Hugh Jackson compiled a 1-31 record, you know, over the course of those two years um, there with the Cleveland Browns. And so I think there's something to that. Um, But I don't know how many active coaches who are, you know, actively seeking – career advancement are going to also put their names onto something like this because you're probably cutting off any more opportunities. And so that's why it does take something courageous um, from somebody like a Brian Flores to do something like this. That is this huge, this significant. Um, it's just not something that we see every day. And there's a good reason for that. Miles did, Brian Flores truly jeopardized his chances of ever becoming an NFL head coach again because what it seems like from what I've heard from Brian Flores and what's in the suit that Brian Flores already felt like he was never going to get another chance to coach as a head coach in the NFL again. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I I think that in some ways this probably was a, a bit of a reaction from the way he felt like he got treated by the New York Giants. I think if you go through that timeline 
of, okay, he was um, approached by one of the personnel, pro-personnel directors, one of the personnel directors of the New York Giants, then had a conversation with one of the Giants owners in uh, John Mara, and then, you know, you're going down the line here, and then he gets that text from Bill Belichick that's like, hey, man, I heard the Giants, you know, they got your guys, you're, you're their guy. And then he's like, well, wait a minute, I don't interview until Thursday. And then it's like, oh, no, this was about Brian Cable. Like, when that happens to you, and this is something that's a dream job for you as a kid who grew up in, in Brooklyn, New York, like, I, that's probably a reaction that one of us can't really fathom, you know? Like, that's something that is really, really kind of ridiculous. And I think going back to what he experienced in 2019 with Stephen Ross and, you know, $100,000, he alleges, for um, every loss, right? Like, that's something that, you know, it's going to go on your record. We already talked a little bit about Hugh Jackson and how he's, already, he's permanently marred by 1-31, in 31, right? So what Brian Flores, instead of being like, well, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this approach, like, no, I owe it to my team, to myself, in order to, to put the best product out there that we possibly can to win. So you know, he's still technically up for two jobs, right, in terms of the Texans and the Saints. Now, I think that if he felt like, he was going to get one of those jobs, he would not have done this until after that. So at least in this cycle, yeah, I don't, I don't know that he was going to get a job. But to say that he wouldn't get one at all, like, I don't know that we really, really know that. But now the chances are certainly much, much, much lower of him ever getting one. Were you discouraged at all, or maybe it was just expected when the NFL came out with their statement basically saying that the, these uh, allegations have no merit? Well, the, the, the whole no merit thing, right? Like, that's legal posturing, and that's kind of expected, at least from my standpoint, um, when the NFL is going to be dealing with something that is this big, right? You, you can't tell me that this is not seismic for the NFL, right? This is somebody who was an active head coach last year, right? So it's not just that, uh, you know, it, it's, oh, well, this guy has been out of the league for a little bit, and now he maybe, maybe wants to get back in in some way. No, it, it's, he is somebody who is actively up for head coaching jobs, and I think that's part of what makes this such a big deal for the NFL. Miles, there are so many explosive parts of the allegations in this lawsuit that I feel like it's it's somehow it can be easy amongst – the, ac- the accusations of tanking, the discussions of, um, you know, how people showed up to interviews, et cetera, to, to almost lose the fact that what we're talking about here is the kind of moment where Brian Flores is opening up the door to anyone who has ever had treatment like this in the NFL to say, hey, I'm leading the charge and you can get with me if you want, like finding the fir- the person willing to be the head of this is such a monumental moment, no matter what else happens on, you know, in the, uh, in the outcome of this, because I think we've seen with the NFL that the outcome isn't likely to be what those who are bringing the uh, charges would like it to be. Uh, yes. No, I, I totally agree with you on that. And look, it's the, the thing that got the NFL to implement the Rooney rule in the first place was the threat of credible litigation right, all the way back in 2002. And so now that there is litigation in something like this, that does force the NFL to say, all right, how else 
can we do something that can improve the hiring practices of the club? And I really think that it's important to make that distinction between the league itself and the league's member clubs, right? Because the league itself has a decent record in terms of, you know, getting diverse hires in the league, right? It's not like we're just seeing, you know, all old white men in positions of power within the NFL league itself anymore. Now, when you look at the 32 member clubs, that's where things are very different, and right? And we can look at the uh, list of head coaches that are currently active in the NFL right now. There are three minorities, and there is only one black head coach. Okay, so those numbers are just so ugly, really, when you look at them. Yeah, that, that's where it's very clear that changes need to be made, how those changes get made and what those changes are. I, that's for someone smarter than me to determine. But I think this is, with this litigation, is where the NFL is probably going to be forced to make changes for its member clubs. But the member clubs aren't really going to love. Maz, I'm curious your thoughts on the, the tanking allegations here, basically an owner paying a coach uh, extra money to lose games there. Uh, we heard Hugh Jackson on Twitter. He's kind of said it. There's potentially more. How many do you think there are? Like how widespread do you think that possibly is where owners were saying to their head coach, you know, you lose this game. I got a bonus for you. I don't think that's that. Maybe I'm being naive, but I just don't think that that's that prominent because if you get caught in doing something like that, you really are messing with the integrity of the game. And if it, it so happens that these allegations are proven from Brian Flores about Stephen Ross, then there's no way that Stephen Ross can keep that franchise in Miami. They're going to strip him of that franchise. You cannot have owners, you know, deliberately saying, let's lose. It's major league, right? Like, that's the plot of a movie. That's ridiculous. You can't have it happen. So, I personally don't think it's that prominent. Now, are there teams and situations where you're like, okay, we've got to take some lumps this year. We've got to endure something potentially pretty crappy in order to you know, uh, achieve our goal later down the line? Yes. But I don't think that usually you're going to have things that are that blatant and let's say, okay, yeah, we're losing games this year. And I'm going to give you a bonus for every game that we lost, every game we lose. That's not something that you can do and get away with it and still keep your franchise. I also feel Miles like Stephen Ross came up with the single worst chance meeting situation <laughs> for for oh maybe Deshaun Watson <laughs> that ever could happen. Hey, come have lunch on my yacht, and Deshaun what Deshaun's going to be at the marina too. What a coinky dig. I can't believe it. Like, like I feel like he lost his credibility in that moment if he were ever going to try to sell that as a, quote, chance meeting. Oh, well, of course. But like, let me clarify one thing, though, that that meeting was with Tom Brady, right? Because that was just before um, everything started going down with COVID, right? So it was basically at the Yacht Club. And, you know, they say, oh, my gosh, you know, well, there's this prominent quarterback. Somebody's going to be here. We got to recruit this guy because at that point it would have been tampering um, before Tom Brady was officially a free agent. So Joe Shad of the Palm Beach Post reported that yesterday. So it's not just Sean Watson. It was he was talking about Tom Brady um, in that, and I guess he just didn't want to name Tom Brady in the lawsuit. I can't say that you know I blame him 
for that. But yeah, I mean, that's it's such a weird like thing where it's like a meat cute and then it's like, oh no, like, can you believe that he's going to be here? Oh my gosh. Like, we've got to be able to recruit him. Like, that's, it's a pretty ridiculous thing to happen. And there are better ways of back channeling probably than that. Um, and, you know, it, that seems, at least in the lawsuit, that, that's where Brian Flores said, yeah, that's probably where my relationship with the owner started to sour. And after this year, it's almost a little surprising that they didn't fire him when the team was 1-7, if that were the case. Because imagine right, if that happened, Brian Flores 1-7 in the middle of the year. You're like, yeah, they stink. Like, even though he's going two games this year, they're not doing anything. Their offense is a mess. Your defense, they can't really get it together. You fire them at one and seven. You probably don't have these problems today because you could at least say we fired him because he was losing. I can't even really say that because they went on the seven-game winning streak and finished the year nine and eight. So it's kind of interesting the way it works out. Well, he is Miles Simmons from, from Pro Football Talk. Miles, we appreciate it as always. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, gentlemen. Have a good one. So there is Miles Simmons from Pro Football Talk. Follow him on Twitter at Miles A. Simmons. All right, we've got a pair of tickets to go see Slash, the River is Rising Tour. They're coming February 19th to the theater at Virgin. You can go to virginhotelslv.com to buy tickets or win a pair from us right now. 702-364-1100 is the phone number. Pair of tickets to go see Slash, the River is Rising Tour. We'll take caller number six at 702-364-1100. Wilson passes it right side. Coleman Lance will try a three. He buried it. Jalen Coleman Lance. Yes, if we want to blow by misses, but McCormick slams a two-hand rim rocker thrown down with authority by David McCormick. Wilson driving left side, kicks it off to Harris. He floats, scoops, and again. What a highlight real day for Dewan Harris. He has been phenomenal. Jackson, another deep three. Misses wide right. Rebound Jalen Wilson, and Kansas is going to grab that win. You can rock. Chuck it up. The Jayhawks win. A gutty road effort tonight in Ames. Goes the way of shorthanded Kansas. You're locked in the press box. So in the break, Jared said, I've got some highlights, and I want to see if you guys can figure out why I'm playing these. I was genuinely very confused. I had no idea who any of those people were until the very last call there that told us it was Kansas. They beat Iowa yeah. State last night. It, it, yeah, and so we're talking about uh, Mr. Otzelberger, um, yeah. which I, I get why we're why we're doing this. But uh, can I just say we all have tastes when it comes to play by play and 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 what we enjoy. And the guy who gives <laughs> yep. you this call is the one I just cannot handle. Yeah, he's not good. <laughs> Rock and chalk and do it to the Jayhawk. What is that voice? Like, no, I'm, I'm like serious. There's an entire group of broadcasters that have that voice. What region of the United States are they from? I think they are from <laughs> Bristol, Connecticut. <laughs> I think it's just like a generation of guys who grew up listening to ESPN. And it's not like anything specific to ESPN. It's just like there is a whole generation of journalists that spouts cliches and you know you could just tell they watch too much sports and are just emulating what they saw versus having something of their own style 
Uh, That's on, my TED talk. See y'all later. On we Iowa got like State, four minutes left of the show. Yeah. On uh, Iowa State, uh, they are sixteen and six. You remember they got off to a twelve and zero start. This is how brutal the Big Twelve is. They're three and six in the Big Twelve, and they maybe have one loss that you would consider bad. Like they lost a home game to TCU by double digits, but they're three and six in the Big Twelve, and like all of the losses, like. Yeah, they lost to Baylor, and they just lost last night to Kansas and Texas Tech. Like, all of them are like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Like, the Big 12 is unbelievable this year that Iowa State is a, a deserving, pretty much, top 25 team, and they might get, like, the one of the bottom two or three seeds in that conference at the end of the day for their conference tournament. What's going to happen is th- the tournament's going to get here. The March Madness is going to get here. Iowa State's going to be a four seed, and we're all going to be yelling about their conference record, not realizing just how brutal the Big 12 is, because look around at what's happened just this week. West Virginia is at the bottom of that conference, and they had Baylor on the ropes at home. And you look beyond that, and Texas Tech, yes, they had reason to be charged up with the homecoming of former UNLV coach Chris Beard, but they took Texas right out behind the shed last night. Like, this conference is good top to bottom. Fran Fraschilla said on the broadcast last night of that Kansas-Iowa State game, as the last of Iowa State's rim-out threes came out, he was like, look, they've had that rim-out three five separate times in this game. That's the difference between winning and losing, and that's just sort of random basketball. Uh, The Big 12 only has one team outside the top 55 in Ken Palm right now. And they're 71st. Like They're not even a bad team. Not even a bad team. (laughs) Your Mountain West could never. No, it could not. So, yes, it's going to be like Iowa State got off. They ripped off 12-0 to start the year before conference play. So their record's not ever really going to be bad. But you're right. Like conference record-wise, I mean, they're going to be like 7-11, something like that at the end of the year. And yeah, they're going to get like a four or five seed and it's probably going to be deserved. The other part I really enjoy because of like what we know about TJ Otzelberger and honestly what we saw under TJ Otzelberger where their defenses were very, very bad. Iowa State is sixth in Ken Palm defensive efficiency. Defense, top 10. They're 121 in offense. They're they're not particularly good on the offensive end. Like that's 121 is basically what UNLV was under Otzelberger last year. They're sixth in defense. How the hell is he coaching such a good defensive team? Well, look, all coaches evolved, Tyler. We got TJ Otzelberger hearing about the legendary efficiency that he had in South Dakota on offense. Saw neither side of the ball be efficient <laughs> while he was in Vegas. And then he gets to Iowa and it's like, yeah, you know what? Defense wins, it's the big 12. He, in five years at South Dakota State and UNLV, had coached four top 100 offenses by Ken Palm ranking. Zero top 100 defenses. His best defense was his first year at UNLV at 133. They're sixth in the country now. What the hell?